Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 79. Last episode, we covered one of three two battalions' darkest days, the mauling they received at the hands of Swapo on the 11th of February 1985, where Charlie Company walked straight into one of the better prepared Swapo bases after taking what some say was a shortcut. The death toll on the South African side was heavy. 13 soldiers from 3 2 Battalion's Charlie Company died either during the firefight or of their wounds later. 15 Swapo were also killed. 3 2 survivors described what happened that day as a massacre, with Charlie Company stumbling upon 100 Swapo soldiers in trenches who were armed with 82mm mortars and machine guns and proceeded to mow down the soldiers of probably the best known SATF battalion. Thus, Operation Forte came to a bitter end. The battalion had been operating deep inside Angola in support of UNITA, but by the end of May 1985, 3-2 withdrew from Angola. The Joint Monitoring Commission came to an end at the same time. Normal service resumed, as they say. Except right now it wasn't quite the war that everyone had known. With the JMC done and dusted, the covert war increased in intensity to a full-scale mechanized war on both sides. In a few months, Fapla and the Cubans were to launch an attack on UNITA in the southeast of the country. But first, Forecki found itself embroiled in their next operation. This was an ambitious project and took the special forces way beyond their normal stomping ground. They were heading to Cabinda province, far to the north, a province that produces most of Angola's oil and gas. It's an enclave inside the DRC, alongside the Congo River. Operation Argon in May 1985 would leave two Rekis dead, one captured, and the South African government in a pickle. Four Reki were once again the go-to organisation, seeing that they had already been successful in blowing up a pipeline in Cabinda in June 1984. 180,000 litres of oil had gone up in smoke. 200 metres of pipeline were destroyed by the South Africans, who made it look like a job by UNITA. Success! It was hoped Op Argon would be a repeat. Commandant Fenter was installed as Ops Commander for Argon, which was going to involve the raiding group sent to the coast of Angola on board a strike craft. They had then board a submarine, which would surface just off the shore near Malongo. They had used their inflatable boats to hit the beach, foot it to the Cabinda Gulf oil storage tanks, mine them, and then be extracted back to the sub. A nine-man team was selected, the maximum that could be taken into the drop zone by a submarine. As usual, Two doctors were sent, along with three coastwains, for the inflatable barracuda boats. Captain Vainant de Toy was the mission commander, and Captain Krubert Nell was his 2IC. I'm going to mention the others involved because this is one of the most vicious face-to-face fights involving the wreckies of the entire war. Staff Sergeant Amelia Queros and Maddie's Adam were joined by Corporals Michael Ho, Gert Engelbrecht, Toby Tablai, Roland Liebenbach and Louis van Breda. The medical support were going to be very busy indeed, and it was fortunate for those who were going to return injured that two doctors were on board the sub, with doctors Dion Rasmus and Franz Vester, both qualified operators as well as surgeons. They were part of this mission. The boat's team included Warrant Officer John Haynes, Sergeant MP Fulun, and Corporals Herbst and Pedrito. Because they were going to end up inserted fairly deeply into Cabinda from the beach, the operation was going to be a two-day affair. They'd be inserted, travel to their layup position, wait during the day, start the operation proper on night two, followed by extraction at 0400 hours on day two. 
This kind of operation meant at least an RPG-7 as well as light machine gun being lugged along. The operators also usually entered with more ammunition, but this time they were limited by weight. Because of the long distance they were going to trek to the target and the mines and explosives they were carrying, it was decided they'd only be outfitted with a single AKM-47 per three operators carrying only two 40-round magazines. Each group of three would also carry two Sterling Patchett silenced machine guns and two 34-round magazines. They were not equipped for a firefight of any sort. This was purely defensive. Each of the nine men were issued with Makarov pistols and two 8-round magazines. One was tasked with carrying a small tin of paint. He was to daub a UNITA sign on a road they were due to cross. A fairly clumsy but effective bit of propaganda, and in this case moot, as you'll hear. They were supposed to be carrying no traceable items, but somehow this order was ignored with disastrous repercussions. You'll hear in a few minutes. During the briefing, they were told that if any members of the team were captured, they were to tell interrogators they were conducting reconnaissance looking for ANC and Swapwood training camps. This was hopelessly silly, really, because anyone who glances at a map can see that Swapo and the ANC would not be training in Kabinda province. The territory is a small slither of land inside the Congo, well over 3,000 kilometers north of the South African border. Furthermore, everyone knew by now that the ANC had burned their bridges in Angola and were training further south. A quick explanation at this point. After initially welcoming the ANC's armed wing MK into Angola after the Soweto riots of 1976, by 1983 that had changed. There was a rebellion in ANC camps after officers beat an MK trainee to death in 1983. Then there was a second mutiny starting in Vienna camp in 1984, where the Angolan presidential guard had to be called in to quell the internal uprising. A third mutiny erupted a few months later at Pango, which was also put down with some difficulty. All of this meant the MPLA, by the mid-1980s, had changed their minds about the ANC and its armed wing MK training in their backyard. Eventually, MK was thrown out of Angola by the MPLA during the final phases of Namibian independence negotiations. I'll come back to this saga later, folks. It's interesting. And so, after a couple of false starts, the date for Operation Argon was set for May 18 to 22, 1985. The SAS Johanna van der Merwe submarine under Captain Steve Stead and the SAS Jim Fushia strike craft, led by Fred Kutje, were the insertion and transport vessels. The South Africans had managed to get hold of Gulf oil charts and maps, which featured a grid system and highlighted the underwater dangers for the sub, including capped wells, mud banks and sandbanks. It was one of these dangers that almost put paid to the submarine. Amazingly, the South Africans had a second operation planned, which was to take place almost simultaneously. This was known as Operation Benix, which was another ambitious plan to hit fuel storage tanks further south at Lobito a day after the raid on Cabinda. The SADF wanted a one-two punch delivered to the Angolans. With hindsight, we can say perhaps an uppercut would have been the better option. Meanwhile, despite the fact the security cluster and cabinet had not signed off the missions, the SADF ordered the sub out of Simonstown on the 7th of May anyway, and it picked up the inflatables, equipment and explosives the next night at Saldana. It was a hefty load, 16 Woodstock limpet mines, along with 6 P-chargers and their stands. These were going to be set up to cause maximum damage to the oil storage tanks, and there were time to also take out the firefighters when they arrived. 
nasty stuff. The important logistic issue was that the strike craft, the Jim Fouchier, would transfer the Argonne team to the submarine just off Cabinda, then race south to join a second strike craft, Henrik Mens, off Lobito as support for Operation Benix. Then it would race back to the north to pick up the Argonne team. The support vessel SAS Pretier would steam around the Atlantic just south of the Kineni River, supporting both ops. None of the operators in either teams knew what the others were up to when they were picked up separately on the 13th of May, after the politicians finally gave the go-ahead. The Jim Fouchier arrived off Cabinda on the 17th of May, well after dark, and rendezvoused with the sub-100 nautical miles west of the enclave. Nine operators were transferred. The Jim Fouchier then headed off south to get involved in Op Benix, while the Johanna submerged and headed towards the shore. It's an interesting ocean shelf off the coast here. Fifty nautical miles out, it's 500 metres deep, but 25 miles out, the shelf rises so the sea is only 100 metres deep. As the Johanna approached the shore, the depth narrowed to 70 metres, and Captain Stead ordered periscope depth to have a look around. The currents were strong and there were many tankers anchored about, so they needed to check their position using the Gulf oil charts. By noting where the terminals were, the captain fixed his position and the sub closed in on the beach. According to Doe Stain in his great book Iron Fist from the Sea, the Takula Terminal, 25 miles north-northwest of Malembo Point, was their main fix. Once they passed this cruising slowly north, the Iona turned southeast towards the launch spot about 12 miles offshore. Once they were sure of this position, the sub withdrew and returned the following night, the 19th, to offload the recon team, which clambered aboard two inflatables at 1900 hours 15. By 2000 hours 45, they were off the beach, and two swimmers, Querosh and Adam, slipped into the Atlantic and made their way to the shore, then up a steep slope and headed through a gully towards the small town nearby. They swam back to the inflatables at 2200 hours 50 and reported that it was easy going past Malongo, but there was a challenge. Very thick and tall grass had slowed them down closer to the tanks. It would take the team more than an hour to head from the beach to the tarred road just east of the town. This may change their timing somewhat. Recon complete. The Reckies returned to the pickup point, but couldn't spot the sub. They had to break radio silence to call the Johanna and cross their fingers that no one intercepted their call. Eventually the sub appeared. They were on board by 0300 hours 30. All this moving around looking for the sub meant the boats had covered almost 40 nautical miles. That was 13 more than they planned and had an impact on the fuel reserves. This was going to weigh heavily on the commanders as they began to make critical life and death decisions later. Everything was now set for the raid proper to begin the next night, the 20th. Radio monitoring revealed that the Angolans, the Russians and Cubans had apparently not picked up the sub's presence despite breaking the radio silence. The plan was to insert the team, which would recce the outer border of the storage depot by 2200 hours. If all went according to their plan, they would lay the charges. If there was a delay, however, then they'd identify their position half an hour after midnight. If they completed everything, the deadline for being extracted by the inflatables was 0400 hours the following morning. So it was at 1900 hours 45 on the 20th that the sub surfaced and dropped off the reckeys about 16 miles off the beach. The inflatables took a great deal of strain carrying their heavy explosive loads and this caused a delay of half an hour in the trip to the beach where they arrived at 2200 hours 30 
chewing up more fuel. Then a fisherman paddling a small dugout passed by, delaying the team. When they arrived at the drop-off point, two men were seen sitting near a fire on the beach. Eventually, the two departed, but it was now 2300 hours 30. Captain Dutoy had to make a snap decision. Do we stay? Do we go? If we go, what kind of changes could be made to the plan? Back aboard the submarine, Operation Commander Fenzer had no idea what was going on, so he couldn't be asked to help. These men were on their own. After weighing up whether to head back to the sub or not, the senior raiders decided there wasn't enough fuel left on the boats to rerun this whole operation. Dutoy made the fateful decision then to continue to their layup point, wait until the next night and complete the mission. The nine men set off up the steep slope into the gully and disappeared, while the inflatables headed back to the Johanna. The stress levels were going up, not just amongst the nine, but also back in the Johanna, where Commander Stead was fretting about his major asset, now in conditions that were distinctly unusual. They were underwater way north of their usual position. If something went wrong, it was going to be catastrophic. He was right to fret. This sub was going to find itself on the wrong side of a search within 36 hours. Back on dry land, the men reached the road junction north of the Malongo fuel storage depot, at 0300 hours. Captain Dutoy took stock. Their schedule was now well out of sync. He needed to speed up, and the road they'd planned to use to the layout point from the east was now too long. They'd now head towards their layout position from the northwest instead, from the direction of the sea, shortening their walk, but by doing so, they made a fatal mistake. There was heavy condensation, a dew on the thick grass that they were going to cross, which was going to leave noticeable tracks. This was even more noticeable with a group of nine flattening the grass in the dark. Worse, they were going to leave the tracks right in front of a Fapla base. It was at 0500 that the team arrived at the layer position, which was a dense area of bush in the middle of an open area. They entered from its western edge. Less than an hour later, the sun rose, revealing something that shocked the Rekis. They were in a precarious position. The thicket they'd entered was not their layup initially identified, but a much smaller spur of bush to one side that missed their main hideout. This little thicket was surrounded by an open plain with only a tiny straggle of vegetation to the south that they could use possibly to wriggle out should they find themselves in trouble. Then there was a second major shock. About a kilometre away to the northeast, just out of the rising sun, was a military bush camp on high ground, they had actually skirted the space in the dark somehow and had not seen it. They then settled into the layup position on edge. Things were going to move extremely quickly from here on in. Starting at 0630, shots were fired nearby, and three men were seen moving through the grass with dogs. They were hunting. One was a white man. This was not Fapla. Perhaps it was a Cuban or Russian hunting breakfast. The shooting continued until 8 when these men left. At 9am, two soldiers appeared, passing northeast, and they broke into a run. The Rekis tensed. Nothing happened. A few minutes later, two more soldiers appeared, and one spotted the spur through the thick grass left by the Rekis. These two walked along the spur, watched by the Rekis hiding in the thicket. One picked up something and turned to speak to his companion, then both walked away quickly. What the South Africans didn't know was that the man had picked up one of their hats, an SADF camouflage hat. This was a dead giveaway. 
The two FAPLA soldiers hurried back to the nearby camp and reported to 2nd Lieutenant Salvador that they had found this South African hat along a trail left in thick grass. Salvador went to look for himself and immediately realized from the spur that the special forces were around and they weren't his. At 1100 hours 30, a large patrol of a dozen or so pitched up near the thicket and began sweeping the grassy area. This went on for two hours, all within sight of the wreckies, who were laid up, waiting. At 1400, a second patrol arrived east of their position. Then at 1500, a third patrol came into view in the open area to the north. It was clear this was abnormal activity. Both the actions and the number of patrols concentrated in the area where they had left their tracks meant the FAPLA were actively looking for them. They were also drawing the perimeter tighter around the wreckies, hiding in the thicket. The sun was beginning to slant. Remember, it was autumn, so the nine men were banking on daylight running out before they were rumbled. At 1600 hours 30, however, they began to hear crashing sounds of people cutting and breaking through the bush to their south. A second later, a Fapla soldier popped up a few meters away from the wreckies inside the bush, and Corporal Tablai shot him once. He fell dead. That was all the others were waiting for. Dozens of troops surrounding this position opened fire with automatic rifles and RPG-7s. The wreckies moved backwards, heading north to the edge of the bush, away from the murderous fire. Captain Nell had been hit in the left shoulder. Corporal Hoch was hit in the ankle and the wreckies rushed to the northern edge, away from this gunfire. Then the team realized that Nell had somehow been left behind. They didn't know he'd been shot a second time. He dropped, then staggered to his feet and ran out into the open. Fapla was so surprised they didn't shoot him down immediately. After a few moments, they did open fire, hitting his automatic rifle and shattering his finger and spattering his face with shrapnel. He dived for cover. Staff Sergeant Queros shouted at Fapla patrols. They were South Africans and wanted to stop fighting. Fapla stopped firing for a second, but Querosh muttered to the rest of the wreckies. He could not surrender, nor could Corporal Tablai. They were both Angolans and would be executed. Fapla resumed firing at this point, trying to hit the group huddled in the small thicket. They were now using RPG machine guns along with RPG-7s and AKs. The RPG rockets were ricocheting off the high ground east of the thicket. The fuses unactivated, they were firing from so close. Dutoy wanted to break into smaller groups and head for the beach north of Malembo, but some of the men argued they should wait for the night. It was now only a few minutes away. Querosh pointed out that waiting was madness. The enemy were being reinforced and had ammunition to burn. They were surrounded. If they waited, they'd never get away. But Corporal Hoch, badly injured, could barely move. Captain Nell was also critically wounded. This appeared to be the end of the road for the raiding party. While they discussed what to do, Fapla soldiers were shouting insults at the South Africans but had yet to directly assault the thicket. They were relying on their superior numbers and firepower to do the job from a distance. The Rekis crawled out of the direct fire zone but left some important clues as they moved, which the Angolans would pick up shortly. Nine water bottles were dumped, which of course revealed the size of the raiding force. The raiders managed to creep back into the centre of the thicket. It was only a matter of time before Fapla began deploying their mortars, then it would be game over. Meanwhile, Captain de Toy had disappeared as these men crept about, so Querosh took over command. Staff Sergeant Adam and Corporal Ingelbrecht were helping the wounded, Nell and Hoch, and followed Querosh and Tablai. They found the densest trees and huddled behind the protection of the branches and trunks. Six of the operators were now together. Three others, including de Toy, were somewhere else. 
"'Twas now seventeen hundred hours thirty. "'Sunset was half an hour away, "'and visibility was starting to drop. "'By now it was more than an hour since the firefight began, "'and it was also the first time that Nell and Hoch could be treated. "'Nell in particular had lost a great deal of blood. "'Engelbrecht bandaged him as well as he could, "'then gave him a morphine shot. "'Nell's hand was a mess. "'His two bullet wounds seeped blood. "'Adam was treating Hoch, whose ankle was shattered by the round.' Vapla continued to fire, but now they were moving into the thicket, hunting the Rekis. The enemy was shouting. Querosh could hear them discussing sharing ammunition, talking about the nine water bottles, and he heard their commander's instructions to set up ambush positions for the night. Meanwhile, Captain Dutoy and two others had made their way towards a clump of trees they had spotted from the thicket. There was thick bush and a small depression between them and the trees. Perhaps they'd make it if they tried to get away. The enemy had crept up to their previous position by now. It was cat and mouse inside this beach-bush zone. Dutoy had to make up his mind in a split second. The three were exposed and were away from the other six. And so they began leopard-crawling towards these trees through the depression. They had no idea that Fapla's commander, Lieutenant Salvador, had ordered his men to keep a sharp eye on this obvious escape path. And so a Fapla soldier spotted the three reckies and shouted, moments before he was cut down by Dutoy and the two others who simultaneously opened up with the AK and two silent Sterling Patchets. Fapla now knew exactly where these three were and focused an intense fusillade straight into their position. Corporal van Breda was shot dead instantly. His two colleagues tried to crawl further, but then Corporal Liebenbach was the next to be hit and killed. Captain Dutoy's AK was hit by a round and damaged, so he hauled out his Makarov pistol and waited for the end. Then he was hit by two rounds, shattering his left arm and the second passing through his right shoulder. His fight was over. He could not hold his Makarov. Enemy soldiers swarmed over his position. Some began grabbing his watch and his weapon, thinking he was dead. Then they realized he was alive, and one stood back to execute him. Cuban soldiers had heard him shout he was a South African soldier, so they stepped in front of the Fapla men who were about to shoot. He was then dragged to his feet, arms tied behind his back, and kicked and dragged across the open plain towards a nearby road. From there, he was driven south to the town of Cabinda for treatment and interrogation. For the survivors back in the thicket, Dutoy's capture was followed by some respite, and it saved their lives. What happened next is for episode 80. Please rate the podcast on iTunes. It helps increase the series' visibility. If you want to contact me, you can email me through the website abwarpodcast.com or direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham. Until next, fuss bait. Mm-hmm.